let's start by saying I never played Pathologic 1. In fact, I never even heard of it. <laughs> or if I had, it was only vaguely like as some horror game, and that was about the extent of my knowledge. It's pretty much what I had going into this one, too. It's a horror game. And then people are like, well, it's like an open-world horror game. And I'm like, okay. Sure. <laughs> and that was about the extent of my knowledge of this one. So I walked in pretty blind. I, uh... <laughs> as usual, I like to talk about gameplay mechanics first. So let's do that, shall we? This game is an indie game. And it feels like it. Now, that is both a good and a bad thing. And I want to talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. On the one hand, there's a definitive lack of polish. Uh, some spelling errors and audio balance issues. There were some... The fact that you can't interact with items unless they're in your inventory. It's, it's, it's hard to properly explain. The fact that you would get stuck on chunks of the terrain. The fact that the jump feature doesn't feel properly you know, exploited. It, 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 there's just several aspects of the game that feel like it's an indie game in a bad way. But the rest of the game is surprisingly focused. Now, I like to use a graph to parallel this. Forgive me for not literally having a graph graphic to throw here, so but bear with me, okay? Imagine that you have a finite amount of time, effort, money, budget, whatever, to put into a game. I know, shocking. So imagine at the bottom of the graph here, we've got all the different types of players they have. That's your... Uh, y? Why no? This this is X. This is your X X factor right down here, right? These are all the different kinds of players. This is how much they enjoy your game. This is how much their enjoyment they're going to get out of your game. Now, what a lot of companies do, especially AAA developers, is they will take all that effort and they will stretch it out as much as possible. So try and get as many different groups all buying their games as they can, while spreading themselves thinly, so that everyone's overall enjoyment of that game is low. Right? It's it's okay. I've actually talked about this before when it comes to movies and, indeed, comedy, because this applies pretty universally when it comes to creative works in general. Uh, it's the very definition of broad. When you talk about broad comedy or broad appeal, it means you have pulled it down to the point where more people can enjoy it less. That's the general concept. But these kind of games, these are niche games, and or niche, or however you're supposed to pronounce that, and... That means all that energy has been focused onto this one group of players, but because it's all here, it's much higher. That one group of players' enjoyment is so much higher because they've spent all that time and focus trying to make it as good as possible for that one group. This is the kind of thing I am in favor of, to be clear. While <laughs> I have been accused of thinking the opposite before, uh, that is not true. I'm totally in favor of these kind of niche games. I, I myself actually am very fond of certain specific types of niches. Rimworld, <clears throat> excuse me, Frostpunk, you know. I've, I've got my niches, and so does everyone else, and that's the whole point, right? We all have our own particular things, and we're in an era in gaming where this kind of thing is amazingly feasible. The barrier to entry for game development is lower than it's ever been, and lots and lots of people have been able to... The barrier to reaching... Customers is lower as well. You know, you look at, uh, oh, I don't know his name, the Gene Forge gentleman, the guy who, who worked on Gene Forge and several other games, and, and how you had to, you know, people had to call him and he had to write down credit card numbers and then punch them in manually in order to be able to sell people a game. And then he would mail them a disc with the game and just 
we're past that now. There's, it's so much easier for people to be able to reach out and buy your game nowadays, which means there's more feasibility, financially speaking, for these niche games, which means more niche games, which is awesome. I'm not in this niche. <laughs> this, this is not for me. Um, but I am super in favor of this kind of thing in general. Sorry, I shouldn't even have said that. I told myself I wouldn't give my opinion on the game uh, in this rumination. This isn't a review, after all. Um, but I do want to I do want to mention that this game, it focuses like a laser on what it's trying to accomplish, and I think it succeeds quite well. I do think it is a flawed game. I, like I said, I do think it has its issues. But let's talk about that gameplay that I promised I'd talk about. The invisible walls can go to hell. Let's just start with that. I don't like invisible walls in general. And the fact that there were multiple points in the city where I had to go completely the wrong way around in, because there was a, a, a slight fence in the way. Or, this is even better, and I can't even visually show you this, but imagine a bit of rock outcropping that's like five inches tall or like eight centimeters tall or whatever. And that's your, the impediment to you going forward. But nope, there's an invisible wall there. You can't progress. That irritated the piss out of me. And there are other things I can complain about the gameplay. Um, but um, honestly, I want to talk more about the things that were interesting from the gameplay perspective. Because again, this isn't a review. We already did the review. This is the summary to the review. I guess I could do it. I, fine, fine, fine. You talked me into it. Invisible voice that's talking to me here. So let's look at the, the gameplay. What was the other big thing? Ah, right. That one. So there was. there's a really big negative to gameplay here. Let's get rid of that. And I do need to talk about this because anybody who's looking to get into this game, first of all, I encourage you. And second of all, be careful. There is a recurring issue that multiple people have. It's not just a Windows 10 issue, unfortunately, because there are people who have reported having this issue on Windows 7. And that issue is when you exit the game, like you go into the menu and you hit exit, the game hard locks your computer. That happened to me. It happened to me on the previous iteration of this computer, the one where I had to replace the CPU and motherboard. I'm not saying that's related. I'm just pointing it out because uh, you know because I tested this weeks ago when I was doing my feasibility tests, and I had to pull the power cable, or rather I had to turn off the PSU. But get the point. I had to pull the plug in order to reboot the computer. There is a workaround. That workaround is that you can pull up your task manager, right click or whatever it is you're using with whatever ver Windows version you're using, and end task. If you end task the program, no issues. You may or may not have the exit bug, but I just wanted to let you know, in the off chance that you haven't played this game, that's a, that's a workaround that works con consistently and isn't going to cause any issues, so why risk it, right? Now, I do think that is unacceptably bad. In fact, it is horrifically bad and terrible in basically every way, and so I wanted to mention that as the negatives. But positive-wise, gameplay-wise, several things intrigued me. The layout of the town is designed. Um, I've talked about this a lot before lately, where sometimes uh, people who are making things, especially when it comes to layout, terrain, and uh, placement of items when it comes to video games, just kind of put things wherever, right? I've actually literally seen people who will just kind of paint objects on the map kind of a deal. That can be a decent thing, but isn't what I consider to be designed. Design is when you sit back and think, okay... If I put this here and this here and this here, then it will have this effect and it'll make this happen and this will be affected in this way, right? I actually complained about this in Resident Evil 3 Remake's uh, Rumination where I talked about how that game was not designed. This is the total opposite of that. While I do think the town is a little bit too big and the invisible walls can go to hell, 
The fact is that the layout and design of the town is quite intelligent. There are clear paths that you are supposed to take and different routes to go across the rivers. There are actual obstacles, such as the buildings and the high walls, which uh, impede you in several you know, logical ways. The placement of where you can save has clearly been thought out, and there's several large areas where you basically can't save. So anytime you go off into that wild area, you're just, you're just going to have to live without a save for several hours. Considering that time is such a major mechanic here, also the simple passage of time is relevant. The positioning of where the boats are that allow you to transit, which towns, uh, which towns, excuse me, which shops exist and where. All of this stuff, very clear thought and effort was put into it, which I actually appreciate quite a bit. It ties in nicely with the idea of how the game handles its hobo economy, as I have been told it's called. Although I agree with the idea, you loot and you trade. This is probably actually, I would consider, the best feature of the game overall. The fact that you go, you loot, you trade, you procure, and that's how you do the survival mechanism is awesome. And in another game, I would probably have enjoyed myself tremendously because I like it. I like, I actually like survival games. You know, Subnautica is probably one of my favorite examples, but nevertheless, I do like survival as a genre. If this wasn't so soul-crushingly horrifying, I probably would have been enjoying myself for the most part, even though I was dying of starvation for the overwhelming majority of the game. There was always something I could do. I started to learn a little bit about certain mechanics I went through as well. You know, the fact that uh, there's a decent amount of RNG involved. Sometimes uh, an NPC or an enemy may or may not spawn, and they may or may not spawn certain items. And when and how much damage you take is also randomly generated. This is something I was playing with towards the end there when I had very, very, very little HP. And sleeping for an hour would sometimes heal me and sometimes kill me. Because the dice would be different. Sometimes the heal I would take would outpace the death tick and so forth and so on. You get the idea. It was interesting to dig into several of these concepts as I was going through. One moment, please. But the other thing that I really got into, though, the probably the... So, so we talked about the layout. We've talked about the positioning. We've talked about the hobo economy. And there's a form of uh, priority when it comes to how you manage everything. Again, this is a time management sim in many ways. Time management survival sim. So you have X time, period. There is a total finite amount of time you have to, to work with. And moving, talking, making, virtually everything you do, talking's not on that list, but every activity you do that doesn't involve a menu takes up that time. So how do you spend it? And that's the key point right there. And that's why I would have enjoyed this game so much more, uh, if not for other problems. Because it's a triage thing, right? It's a priority list. Okay. So let, let me just walk you through an actual scenario, because I'm doing such a terrible job of explaining myself here. Let's say that you are in a position where you are very low on health, and you are currently infected with the plague, and you're about to die of starvation. What do you do? Well, there's only so many options. But sitting back and routing that, and that's the word I want to use there, routing was so much of my enjoyment of this game. Because every time I would just sit and think, okay, what can I do? And as I thought more, as I got more into the game, as I got more experienced, as I understood more of the mechanics of the game, more unusual tactics would occur to me. Now, I already just mentioned one of them. Let me tell you what I did in that exact scenario. I slept for an hour, gambling that I would heal more than I didn't. I did, so now I'm slightly more healed. I have enough health to survive a quick jaunt out of the town, out of, out of my home base, rather. Murder an innocent soldier to steal their food, because the soldiers have a high probability of dropping food, 
take the food, eat it, restoring my hunger bar, allowing me to go back to the thing and try another round of sleeping now that I'm not going to be taking two damage ticks at the same time, the infection tick and the hunger tick. And there's just options like that. One of the other things I did in a similar situation, uh, several people thought I was totally deathlocked, and unfortunately I did fail. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute here, but... Uh, you know, several people thought I couldn't get out of the situation. I was rather pleased that I actually did get out of what I thought was a was a complete failure spiral by successfully getting to the point where I would convince, I, I would get thugs to follow me. I would lure them to the soldiers, watch the fight, and then I would kill whoever won the fight, who would be low on health at that point. Now, this was necessary because I myself was on the verge of death with basically one health and no real weapons to speak of. This way I could kill them, take their items, and then use those in order to extend my life slightly. Yes, this all sounds horrible, but you could see how from a tactical perspective and a gameplay perspective, this kind of routing and gambling is very engaging. But I should probably talk about the story. Okay. Real talk. I was going to do a thing where I wrote down this total nonsense sentence and was just going to read it for you guys. But it would look too obvious, and I, I decided to skip the gag. <laughs> This game's a little weird. I'm going to go ahead and admit, you know, as I mentioned, not my wheelhouse. I'm not into surreal, and I'm not into depressing. So it's got nothing to offer me there. So instead, we're going to talk about what there is present in a neutral fashion. Let's talk about representation storytelling versus literal storytelling. Now, representation storytelling is extremely rare in video games as well as movies and shows. It is something that happens, but it's pretty rare. I'll talk about that in a second. Literal, literal storytelling is much more easy to understand. You know, you're probably thinking, what's the distinction here? Literal storytelling is whatever you see on the camera is what's happening. If you see a tiger jump out of nowhere, let's use that as a demo. Let's say you see a tiger jump out, and it mauls the, the character, and the character goes, ah, and there's just blood. That's literal representative would be, let's assume a person jumps out and they have a mask tied to the end of a stick, right? And there's just a tiger mask right here, okay? And they're like, Rawr! and the person reacts as if they're a tiger. And then the tiger person claws at the air and the person falls back. Oh, and we, you know, oh my God, I'm so injured and bleeding. That's representative. Now, if that sounds like th a theatrical thing or a play, that's because that's where it comes from. When they didn't have the special effects to show things, they would show things that would represent those things, right? This is something I myself have done with my Extant Parish videos. That's not actually the Final Fantasy VI characters. They're just actors playing a role, and you're supposed to understand based on the representation. Now, representative storytelling is actually fascinating to me. Obviously, the ideal would be to do literal storytelling. But representative offers options for people who don't have the time, the budget, the resources, the tools, the expertise in order to do literal. Actually having that tiger jump out and attack someone's hard to do. It takes special effects budget or an actual trained tiger and the people to take care of that tiger and the makeup artist to do the blood effect. And you get all the things. There's a lot of cost, effort, time, expense, expertise, tools, etc. that are required to do literal. When you can't do literal, you do representative. I've gained a lot of uh, respect for this over the years since I myself lack all of the things I just mentioned. Now, what does this have to do with this game? This game is totally representative. There are many circumstances where we're talking to someone or something, and it's not literal. The key, the fun part, is figuring out which parts are literal and which parts are representative. Because 
There is a lot of literal stuff happening. We do literally go into an organ underneath the town and interact with a heart, which is currently being pierced, pierced by a spike of iron. Probably the most overt symbolism of the entire game right there. That actually happens. That's literal. Then we talk to a dude in a black stitched up suit with a weird mask who speaks of the voice for another character. That's representative. That is an actor who is portraying it. We got the same kind of thing with the beak people and obviously the whole theatrical play thing that is a motif of the work as a whole. So you can see this representation and how it is used throughout the course of the, how said the film, throughout the course of the game, which is an interesting approach. And like I said, very rare to see this kind of a thing, at least when it comes to game design. Now, at least I, I suppose I should walk that back. I could, I, you could argue that that kind of representative storytelling is something that's actually semi-common. It's just in, in manners I usually don't think about. I'll use a direct example. In Final Fantasy VI, when two sprites are doing this, you know what they're doing. They're fighting. You know, they're, they're trying to attack each other. They don't literally show the swords and the attack. So I suppose that's also representative. So never mind. I'm going to walk that one back. It's still cool to see here. The next thing I want to talk about is... Uh, I, let's say I put out a story, a game or whatever, and I, it's a story about someone who is struggling and suffering and dying in the streets, but they get a lucky break and they manage to turn it around and they, they, they make their life better and they get a happy ending, right? Now, if you listened or watched or played that story... First of all, you'd be like, this is crap! But the second thing you would probably do is you'd say, well, this, this, this person's clearly someone who's very Western. Uh, this is clearly someone written by an American, to use an example. Now, that's true. I, I, am, I am someone who was born in the States, and I have lived in the States my whole life. But the point is, I didn't set out to make a story set in America with American mindset. That's just something that was a story I wanted to tell. My perspective and culture may bias that, but that's more of a byproduct than a deliberate source. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but the reason I bring this up is because I've heard from many people, including my own viewers and myself, that this is totally a story set in Russia during the Great War. But there's plenty of clues and hints that that's actually not true, and that's ignoring the fact that literal magic exists. So... <laughs> Obviously, this could just be a type of story that was told by people who have lived in those kind of circumstances who are going from their particular cultural bias, etc., etc. You could argue that, of course, but I, I kind of mentally started to divorce myself from that expectation and just thought of it as its own thing. Rather than thinking of this as Russia, I just started thinking of it as, I don't actually remember the name of the town, now that I think about it, the town, Burdog or something, Burderg, I don't know how to pronounce it, please forgive me. <laughs> The exposition in this game is actually quite tight. It is some of the better exposition I've seen recently. There's a lot of good ways to do exposition, um, and there's several ways to do really bad exposition. This is a form of showing, not telling. What we see in this game is that you have dialogue options that indicate that your character you are playing understands and, and has, an, uh, has a, a greater... We'll just stick with understanding. Has a better understanding of what is being told to them than we do, the players. So even if we walk in completely blind and don't know what we're talking about, our character does. And so by the way in which we respond to them, we get the context clues to figure out what's going on. Excellent exposition, and I do want to give special praise to that. Especially since I'm going to go ahead and mention one of the other things I didn't like about this game. The dialogue. Yes, I literally just praised the dialogue, and I stand by that. But every now and again, the dialogue was... Weird. And I don't have a better way to say that. It was just unusual. 
uh, several people in chat called it theatrical, you know, because people in plays, that's not how people talk, right? They have a sort of a cadence and style and approach to their speech, which is, it's just now how, not, it's not how people speak. And there was a lot of that in this game. I don't want to sound like it was confusing because that's not the point. I actually had no problem understanding most of what was being said. It's just that in several cases, what was being said was nothing. Just, just white noise, effectively, or empty text, as I like to call it, was happening. Which is strange, because the rest of the dialogue was perfectly logical. You know, a, a child talking about how the iron seeds are growing into the earth and will change the, the terrain. That makes perfect sense, because that is more or less metaphorically what's happening, which is a good segue into one of the major themes of this game that I took from it, which is the, the industrialization versus the naturalization thing. Now, I don't want to say full industrialization. I could say progress, technological, however you want to think of that. It's a very common theme, you know. <laughs> but in this case, it's presented interestingly because A, neither side is shown as correct or right, and B, both sides are shown as being dirty and ugly and terrible, which I suppose is rather apt and something that helped me appreciate the slanting thereof. On the one hand, we have the literal mythical, the magical, the creatures that are inhuman and do things, and for God's sakes, you can pour blood onto the ground and make stuff grow, right? And on the other hand, we have trains and automobiles and artillery and people who uh, design medicine. A recurring motif is why would you try to fight sickness, because sickness is, is not a bad thing. And there's a very culty, for lack of a better way to put it, vibe about how you have to abandon I. Only the people who are, the only people who survive are those who abandon the word and concept of I, which is a nice segue into the second major theme. Now, in my notes, I have this written down as individualism versus collectivism, but honestly, this is past collectivism. This is more like true hive mind. The way that they talk, especially with the kin, is that there literally is no sense of an individual entity. There is simply pieces of a whole, that the whole is all that matters. So they don't really care if, you know, you have to uh, chop off a finger to get rid of some, some kind of gangrene. You know, they don't mourn for that because the body's still there. The individual is still there. The life is still alive. What's the problem here? Nobody cares about the blood cells of an individual. They only care about the individual. And thus the and this is why I say this goes further into total hive mind is because this is positing the idea that the individual is the entire entity, and this ties into the overall approach. Earlier in the game, I actually theorized that these people who had settled here had made some kind of pact with some kind of magical creature years ago, and that's how they settled here. In truth, this feels a little bit more Tolkien-esque than that. Uh, I was thinking this was going to be kind of more fairy tale, but instead, what this is, is this is the old magic of the old eras, which is dying out and is being replaced by whatever is being invented by the new, the magic slowly seeping out of the world and being replaced by the mundane. That was the ending I was going for, consequently. I did decide to go ahead and just try to destroy the polyhedron, um, because of course I did. There was a freaking heart under the ground that just, I, I, honestly, I kind of wanted to drop a, a bunker buster or two on this place and maybe a couple of nukes. <laughs> just kind of wrecked this place. I want to talk about pacing. At first, I ha and I have it in my notes here, that the pacing of the game is bad. I don't agree with that sentence anymore. I don't want to explain why. The original thought was that the pacing was static. 
And as I've always said, there's there's many different ways to do good pacing and a few ways to do b definitively bad pacing. And one of the most definitive aspects of bad pacing is when everything has the same general tempo. Now, on the off chance you haven't heard me talk about this, tempo in a fictional work isn't just about how fast something is happening or how energy energetic it is. It's just about the general tempo of the scene and the gameplay, right? Something that is a very deep personal moment where someone has been unveiled, something very, very, very emotionally traumatizing, or when there's a great tension, when you're sneaking through a thing very quietly, trying to escape the velociraptor or whatever. All of those are high moments, in addition to like a giant explosion and a run through a city. Low moments are more like the characters talking you know, politely in the background or the casual pan of the camera as they're doing the ter you know, terrain transition shots or whatever, right? High, low, right? You with me? Good pacing can do something like this, and this is pretty generically good pacing, but there's other ways to do good pacing as well. So, my thought was that this game was always just low. Everything was just bad forever. And after a while, I stopped caring. That is one of the problems of that kind of pacing. Uh, my favorite example of this is Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3, which is it's the exact opposite. It's constant high. It's everything is always full pace. And it gets boring. It gets it grinds you down to the point where you just don't care anymore. And that's the exact reaction I was having to this game. It wasn't until about day seven or eight that I started to notice the change in the pacing. And obviously there's some good gameplay stuff here. The game gives you tons of options to start with, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, it gives you all these options, it gives you all this stuff to do. And it just starts taking away things strategically, bit by bit. And again, very designed. Uh, at a certain point, even the kids are gone. So there goes the hobo economy, and at that point, you're just kind of screwed, right? You hope you've stocked up by that point. But as it was descending, and, and that's exactly what was happening, the tone was descending. No, I'm saying that wrong. The tone stopped descending and started ascending. The tension started ramping up. The Again, it's not about racing through a city or explosions. It's about the, the, the overall tempo of the scenes and the presentation. And as the scenes progressed and as the game progressed, the tension started ramping up. So it started kind of plateauing, and then it started doing this. And so those last few, I don't know, my last five or six days were much more enjoyable for me uh, overall, ignoring the fact that, well, <clears throat> I mentioned I'd talk about something else uh, gameplay-wise, and I suppose I should here. <laughs> the um gosh so the, uh, before i do that i'm sorry i'm gonna walk myself back here i talked about the tolkien-esque thing and the the folklore thing the dialogue the exposition how, how many of you have played homeworld homeworld one or two or cataclysm or deserts of karak I've only actually reviewed one of those. I could easily recommend all of them. In those games, there's a moment that... Uh, there's there's a great tension, a tremendous stress as you're playing through it. It's very tense kind of games. Because, generally speaking, you're just holding on by the bare bones of your teeth. And very quickly you understand the kind of things that mean bad stuff is happening. My favorite example being the... Which I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about just by mentioning it that way. There's several things like that in this game. But the other parallel I wanted to make is that in the Homeworld series, your second time through is rather substantially different. You know why? Because you know what you're doing. With nothing changed other than knowledge, your second playthrough is substantially different. Now, 
You could argue that most games have this, and I would not argue back. However, I would strongly make the point that precious few games are designed around this. This is kind of a gaming equivalent of Babylon 5 effect, where the first time, the first playthrough is intended to be a completely and totally separate perspective than the second playthrough. Now, I specifically emphasize these first two, because there's a whole other bag of, of, of cats that are just over there meowing when it comes to the third playthrough and onwards, when you start to really perfect a game. That's a separate category. But those two playthroughs are vastly different, because the first time through you're just learning and understanding and barely going by by the skin of your teeth. Whereas the second playthrough, like if I was to pick this game up right now, I guarantee you I would do substantially better. Not because I'm good at the game, because I know... I know what to what to look for now. I know how to stretch out my resources better. I know what to trade for where and what. I know what the plague is and how it's going to manifest. I know how to dodge the the moving clouds because that's that's they they act in a, a typical or not a typical a predictable fashion. So you can actually dodge them. I know how to avoid combat and I know how to win at combat. I have beaten people who had knives with just my fists by virtue of stagger locking them by very carefully timing my attacks on them. All of this stuff is just knowledge and nothing else. And that's the key point. A game where the more you know about it, the more you can do with it, the more tools you have in your arsenal, and thus the second playthrough is substantially different. And again, I feel like this was deliberately designed, probably at least in part because there's supposed to be two other entire campaigns, which aren't out yet and hopefully will come out someday. <laughs> but that's the last thing I wanted to talk about. You're probably thinking, Lord, you're doing nothing but praising this game. Why, why'd you pray, why, do you, why are you so down on it? Well... <laughs> I tripped at the finish line. I got to a point where I was so death-looped that the only thing I could do would be to reload a save from two days earlier to a point where I... So I, what happened is I willingly accepted being infected on the advice of one of my viewers <laughs> in order to to see what happened, right? In order to experience it, which I did. But that was a colossal mistake and completely prevented me from beating the game because having to deal with that additional infection damage on top of everything else was something that just drained my resources to the absolute ridiculous brimming point. Now, I learned a lot about the game and how it operated in those final days because holy crap. But um, it, 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 it was an unwinnable scenario. Even under the ideal circumstances, I simply ran out of time in between having to juggle and use tricks and tactics just to keep my health up long enough to be able to survive walking across town, talking to the three couriers, and then walking back here, and then getting him to the general, and then turning in the thing, and then blowing up. I didn't have time. I literally ran out. And that was game at that point. <laughs> and, uh, well, that's the game in a nutshell, isn't it? I failed. <laughs>